Well, again, you're there in 2 Timothy chapter 1. Let's, would you stand with me? Let's read our text this morning. We come to the final paragraph or section of 2 Timothy chapter 1, and it is indeed stirring. So may the Spirit of God minister to us. Let's read this together, and then I'll pray and ask the Lord's blessing on our time. 2 Timothy 1, 13 through 18. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phagellus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me and earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would allow that the Holy Spirit would open our hearts to this text, that we would be impressed upon by these words, that they would impact us this morning, that we would see the urgency of the summon of these texts, that we would not consider ourselves distant from it removed from these responsibilities. That we would see this gospel call as one that You have given to us in Christ. And then, Father, if we see the weight of this, but not to be dismissive, to not to make excuses, not to, to see this as something that someone else is called to do, but to own it. And then to humble ourselves before your greatness and your commands and to see our own inability and our frailty and our failure and to rest in the power of Christ and the Holy Spirit to bring about these works of of righteousness. Father, we come before you needy, confessing our inability, confessing our failure and ask that you would take us up, transform us, fill us with the Spirit empower us, impassion us, and and do your work in us to perpetuate the gospel of Jesus Christ in the world and the church. We pray this for the name of Christ, for your glory, for the hallowing of your name, for the advancement of your kingdom, for the accomplishing of your will, for our good, for our joy in the church. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. You remember the overarching themes and thrust of the second letter of Paul to Timothy? I hope you remember kind of the three-part goal that I've presented to you many times now as Paul's intent for Timothy in receiving this letter. You remember that Paul is in the Mamertine prison in Rome, a dungeon awaiting his own execution. 
So this is a very intense moment in the life of the Apostle Paul. He's not going to be on earth much longer. And the mission that God has called him to, he is passing on to Timothy. And so in this final short letter of four chapters, he is moved, he is, he is eager, he is urgent to preserve the message of the gospel. He has received the gospel message to the Gentiles from Christ Himself. And now He's passing all of that on to Timothy and He's urging Timothy, you have to guard this precious treasure of the Gospel. And as He gives that to Timothy, He's also preparing the man, Timothy. So He's he's preserving the message. He's also preparing this man for the ministry that is coming to him. Timothy is struggling with illness, struggling with weakness. He's he's timid, timid Timothy. And yet, Paul is inviting him to not be ashamed of the gospel, but to share in suffering by proclaiming it faithfully. So he is preserving the message. He's preparing the man, but then he's perpetuating the ministry. He wants Timothy to embrace biblical, faithful, gospel ministry, the way Paul lived it out his whole life, by the grace of God. And so as we come to this first chapter in 2 Timothy, Paul is giving Timothy powerful truths to change him, to move him, to motivate him, to to enable him to fulfill these exhortations that he's given to him. Let me remind you, please follow with me as we look at the exhortations that we see in chapter 1. We've already been through Several of them. Look at verse 6. For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you, through the laying out of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and self-control. There's our first exhortation. To preserve the message, to prepare the man, to perpetuate faithful biblical ministry, the gift of God given to Timothy, and to each one of us by the Holy Spirit, must be stirred up. It must be fanned into flame. We must realize it, encourage it, develop it by the Holy Spirit. And we don't have to be afraid of that exercise. Why? Not because we're anything to boast about, but because God has given to us a spirit within us. The moment of salvation, God gives us the Holy Spirit, and He is a spirit of power and love and discernment. Look at verse 8. So fan into flame, Timothy. Verse 8, don't be ashamed. Don't be embarrassed about the gospel. Don't be embarrassed to be a proclaimer of the gospel. Rather, proclaim the gospel. Teach it. Communicate it. Explain it clearly, accurately, boldly, lovingly. And in doing so, you share in suffering. You will share in suffering. Again, all of that is to be done by the power of God. Not once does Paul look to Timothy, telling him these exhortations to fulfill, and asking him, come on, pull yourself up, get it together. Why are you being so weak? Why are you being so fearful? Get out there. Look at at me. Look how well I've done. Paul doesn't say that. He says, do so by the power of God. Do so by the Holy Spirit that lives in you. Verse 13 and 14 bring to us 
the fourth and fifth exhortations of this chapter. Verse 13 says, follow the pattern. There's one thing we're not called to in gospel proclamation. It's originality. Right? If any one of us are proclaiming a new message in a new way, we have the wrong message. Paul calls Timothy to follow the pattern of sound words. And then the fifth exhortation, guard the good deposit. Defend the gospel with your life. Guard the good deposit. And again, neither of those exhortations he is calling Timothy to by his own strength or abilities or gifting or any of it. His own, his own skill. No, he says, verse 14, what? By the Holy Spirit who dwells in you. There is not one of these exhortations that we can fulfill if the Holy Spirit does not dwell in us. And since the Holy Spirit does, we can. That's really the hope of this whole text. And so here's the main idea that I think is a one way of encapsulating these verses is at every point in gospel advancement, we must remain faithful to the message by the Holy Spirit's power. Faithfulness to the gospel. In your, in your bulletin, I, I had asked it to be given as a title, loyalty to the gospel or gospel loyalty, something like that. And I'm like, you know what? I don't see the word loyalty here. Faithfulness is all over the New Testament. Let me just use that word that's more familiar to the, to, to the pattern of the New Testament. I think it's more fitting. Faithfulness to the gospel. What does that mean? You know, the Apostle Paul often compared the Christian life to an athletic competition. Did you notice that? He compares it to many other things as well. But gospel advancement. Faithfulness to the gospel, he often compares to athletic competitions. For example, look at 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. He's, he's, he's inviting Timothy, he's exhorting him to advance the gospel, remain faithful to the gospel by saying, be a soldier, be an athlete. Be a hardworking farmer, all by the strength given to you from the grace that is in Christ Jesus. But there's something to that analogy that is very instructive to us. 1 Corinthians 9, 24-27, Paul brings that same analogy in. A little bit of different sport. Here it seems like the athlete could be a marathon runner. But then in 1 Corinthians, it seems like he's a boxer of some sort. And Paul talks about his boxing being effective. And as an athlete that wants to be skillful, he keeps his body in subjection. The body becomes a tool for fulfilling a goal. He doesn't let his, his body, his feelings, his earthly, fleshly desires rule him, but he masters those so that he can win the prize. Think with me of an intense basketball game. That's the only sport I knew in high school. So I, my mind goes back to those intense moments when the clock is ticking down, the score is so close. You, you, have, you have to remain engaged in the competition at every point in the game. 
Can you imagine someone on the team after a fantastic offensive play shooting the ball in the opponent's basket? That would seem absurd to us. Or can you imagine someone on the team in the midst of a defensive struggle then handing the ball to the opponent? Or can you imagine someone on the team in the midst of a sudden death finale walking off the court, going to the locker room, packing up and heading home? I mean, that would seem appalling, right? What would the crowd do? You know, the star player. You know, it's score is tied, sudden death. We've been through four overtimes and nobody's winning and, and he leaves right at the most critical moment. How appalling would that be? And yet, it is far more appalling when a professed Christian defects from the gospel and its bearers in shame, in fear, during seasons of hostile pressure from the evil one or worldly cultural pressures that he feels, gospel defection, handing over the ball to the opposing team, bailing out at that critical point. You see, at every point in gospel advancement, we must remain faithful to the message by the Holy Spirit's power. What is this faithfulness, this integrity, this perseverance that we're called to exercise by the power of the Holy Spirit? I'm going to kind of term these maybe in somewhat of these athletic descriptions, borrowing from Paul's analogies here. Number one, it's an offensive faithfulness. It's an offensive faithfulness. An offensive, I don't mean by being an offense in terms of offending people necessarily by the way we do things. What I mean is by being proactive, pursuing something. There is an offensive. We're on the offensive. There's an offensive faithfulness that that Paul is calling Timothy to. Verse 13, he says, follow the pattern of sound words that you've heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Have you ever heard this statement? The best defense is a good what? Offense. How can you guard something how can you know something well enough to protect it and shield it and, 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 and keep it preserved if you aren't fully engaged in it yourself and loving it and knowing it and pursuing it? That's the idea here. Notice the heart of verse 13 on what is Paul fixing Timothy's attention. He says, follow the pattern of sound words. What's the pattern there? A pattern is a, a model. An example, the standard would be a great translation of that word. Follow the standard. Don't vary. Vary from this standard. Sound words. What are these sound words? Words that are whole and healthy, without error, absolutely true, life-giving. What's Paul talking about there? He's talking about the gospel. The message of salvation. The way of eternal life through Jesus Christ. And it's the words that Paul says Timothy heard from him. 
Paul is the one who delivered this gospel message to the Gentiles, to Timothy to be a, a servant of the Gentiles. Turn with me to Galatians. Let me remind you of the authority that Paul had in delivering the gospel directly from the Lord Jesus Christ. Galatians 1. And, of course, we know this chapter begins with a, just a very, very sobering warning. Verse 6, Paul says to these precious Galatian believers, professing believers, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel Not that there is another one. But there are some who trouble you, want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received. Let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you to know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. There it is. You see, Paul has this apostolic authority. He received the gospel message directly from Christ. If you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it, and I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who has set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, or Peter, and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. When I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ, only They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Then, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and sat before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. 
But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you, and from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, just or to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised. For he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. There's the gospel Paul had. Received from Christ, passed on, affirmed by the apostles, and now given to Timothy. 1 Corinthians 15, 1-11, the same sort of message. Paul says, I preach this gospel to you that I received, that Christ died and was buried and rose again. These are the sound words. And think about the details of this gospel message written all through the apostolic letters of the Apostle Paul. The pattern, that's the pattern, that's the standard. Those are the sound words, the words free from error that give life. And what is then the exhortation to Timothy from Paul concerning these sound words? What does he say? Follow it. Keep it before you. That's an interesting word. It's, it's a word that simply means hold on to it. Follow is a little bit of an interesting translation of this. It's more of an intense holding on to it. It's persist. To keep it before you. Hold fast to it. Depart. Don't depart from it. And that's what I mean by offensive faithfulness. You are on the offensive. You're being proactive with gospel faithfulness. Think of school children who regularly trace the dotted lines learning to write the letters, right? All of us have seen that. All of us have done it. Way back in kindergarten, A, B, and so on. Or multiplication tables. One plus one is two, you know, all this stuff. Multiplication, division. And we memorize this and we, me and we say it over and over and over again. Or we recite poetry. Do you remember reciting The Arrow by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow? Or the Charge of the Light Brigade by Tennyson. These are things that we recited over and over again. And eventually what happens? It doesn't mean so much at the beginning, but then it becomes part of you. It becomes part of your character. It becomes who you are. And you can write any letters without the dotted lines. You can, you can rattle off multiplication and, and use it 
for whatever practical expression you want to use it for. You can, you can recite a poem and you feel it deeply because it's what you believe and you know it. And that's kind of how it is to live daily with the gospel. You begin to follow the pattern. You set it before you daily. You learn to understand it by the Holy Spirit. You keep it before you. You hold fast to it until it's part of you. It's how you think. It's how you talk. It's forming in you deeper and deeper conviction. It's filling you with a sense of humility and gratitude and love and compassion. And that's why Paul commands Timothy to follow the gospel pattern. Notice, in faith and love. In the faith, in the love that are in Christ Jesus. You know, this is speaking of the subjective side of faith and love. In fact, this little, this little word there, the... The definite articles really shouldn't be in the translation. You have heard from me in faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Faith. How do, how do we talk about following or holding fast to the pattern in faith? It talks about deep conviction. It's not just a profession of faith anymore. It's not just a, a mental assent to what we believe is true. This is a deep conviction and confidence that the gospel message is absolutely true in every detail. How do, how do we get to that place in our lives where the, the, the truths, the details of the gospel are written on our conscience, written on our heart, form the way we think, shape the very words we speak? Well, it's, it comes by spiritual understanding from the Holy Spirit. He has to turn on the lights for us, as it were, spiritually. And that happens during regular and frequent exposure and study of the gospel. But also this following the pattern is to be done in love. Not just, not just deep conviction, but, but genuine compassion. True compassion and kindness with which the gospel message must be proclaimed and expanded. Again, how does that come to us? It comes by spiritual transformation in the Holy Spirit. If you, here's, here's the point. If you know the gospel deeply enough and those convictions are rooted deeply in you, doesn't it form within you compassion because you understand how you came to be a receiver of the gospel? If you don't understand the gospel and you're rattling off just sort of um, religious terminology that, that you've heard, th there's no compassion in that. But when you understand who you are, what God has done for you in Christ, in your sinful and broken state, then how can you repeat that message without compassion? Right? That's what the Holy Spirit is working in us. We follow it in faith. We follow it in love and in Christ. In Christ. None of these attitudes or actions, none of this deep conviction or genuine compassion comes apart from Christ giving them to us. Only He can grant that through His Spirit who dwells in us as we continually keep the gospel before our eyes and committedly hold fast to it. Only He can give to us the essential accompanying actions and attitudes for offensive faithfulness to the gospel. So offensive faithfulness to the gospel means that we keep the standard of the apostolic gospel before us continually. 
It means that we hold fast to it every time we learn of it for ourselves so that our conviction grows deeper and deeper. It means to hold fast to it every time we communicate it to others so that our compassion is genuine. It means that we depend wholly upon Christ to enable us to open our understanding of the gospel, to keep it before us, to, to, to hold it fast. We depend on Christ to do this in us through the Holy Spirit, to hold fast to it as we explain it to others and to be filled with His love as we do so. So let me ask you, let's turn those into questions this morning for our own hearts. Do you keep the gospel before you? Is your understanding of the gospel past and distant? Or is it present and deepening? Think about that. Sometimes the gospel feels to us like something we, we heard before when we needed that, when we were unsaved, and then we became saved, and it's sort of just what we knew. Or is this something that we live in daily so that we are filled with the Spirit? Is it a past and distant knowledge, or is it present and deepening? Is the gospel something that you feel like you already know it, or is it something you're continuing to know and grow in and learning to apply? Is the gospel your joy? Is it your passion? Is it, is it, does it work in you, growing humility and gratitude? Are you, are, is all of that, is, is your joy, your passion, your humility, your gratitude, is it growing cold? Or is it growing warmer because of your exposure to the gospel of Jesus Christ? You know, there's so much working against us on that front. It's so hard to be faithfully exposing ourselves to the pattern of sound words. So much vies for our time and attention. When we open the Word, we often don't pursue the right things as we're looking for to, to the knowledge of God. One of the things we need to be looking for is not only, God, show me who you are, show me who Christ is, show me the way of salvation, show me the message of the gospel. Help me to understand how you are saving me, how you save sinners, your work to bring me to that place of glory someday when I stand before you face to face. So do you keep the gospel before you? You know, there are some wonderful resources that can help us with that. And one of them is in our little bookstore. I want to I encourage everyone to get this little book, The Gospel Primer. There's a few out there for sale. They're there for you. That's why we have those books. I want all of you, by God's grace, to be readers. I want to be a better reader. We need to take the words of truth and put them before our eyes day in and day out. This is why. Faithfulness to the gospel. And it stirs our heart. And it, and it helps us to grow. Do you hold fast to the gospel when you're explaining it to others? Following the standard of words, or do you cut corners when you're sharing the gospel with others? Do you ever, do you ever have that experience when sharing the gospel with others where you know what the pattern of sound words is, you know the truths of the gospel, but they're sharp to the unbeliever's ears, aren't they? And so sometimes you want to clip off those corners and, and make it craft the message, soften it a little more 
for the modern ear. Oh, my brothers and sisters in Christ, let us never do that. We have to hold to the pattern, right? Follow the pattern. That's what what Paul's telling us here. There's so much working against us on this front as well. Have Have you felt, have you experienced that just all that you're taking in over the last couple of years, that the intensity of hostility toward the truth and the gospel is just amping up more and more? Well, this isn't going to get any easier. We're still called to it, though. Follow the pattern. Follow the pattern. Is Christ forming within you an ever-deepening conviction that the gospel is true from start to finish in every detail? Is Christ filling you with, with a sense of His compassion as you speak the gospel? And really, are you daily, prayerfully asking Christ through His Spirit to open your eyes, to keep you faithful, to fill you with His love? Only this happens in Christ. Paul is calling Timothy and us by the Holy Spirit to gospel faithfulness, to proactive, positive, offensive faithfulness. At every point in gospel advancement, we must remain faithful to the message by the Holy Spirit's power. Number two this morning, defensive faithfulness. Please notice again in this text what Paul is drawing Timothy's attention to. Look at verse 14. By the Holy Spirit who dwells in us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. What is that? There we have it again in different words. The good deposit entrusted to you. Think about those words. That that word, the deposit entrusted to you, is really one word in the original. It speaks of something that is given to you for safekeeping. Something of great value that is being handed into another's care so that it is not lost or destroyed. What is it that has been given to Paul and Timothy and to us? The gospel. Do you think of the gospel as that sort of deposit? We've talked about this in the past. Think of it. It's, it's, almost, it's almost incomprehensible that God would take this message called the gospel that is the, 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 the message of eternal salvation and put it into the hands of broken, frail people like us and say, keep it safe. Pass it on without any change. Wow. That's overwhelming. This, and this concept comes up multiple times throughout the letters of First and Second Timothy. Just, just remember this with me. So, First Timothy chapter 6. Just a few pages back for us. And verse 20. And, oh, is Paul full of urgency and passion as he communicates this verse. 1 Timothy 6.20. Oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. And we need grace to do this. Grace be with you. Guard that deposit, Timothy. 
And then 2 Timothy 1 and verse 12, we, we already saw that. This is why I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Paul is continually to envision Jesus Christ taking this gospel message and entrusting it to people like us to give to others. What a deposit is this? A precious treasure. A priceless deposit. I'm reminded of Jude 3. That faith once for all delivered to the saints. Contend for it. Protect it. Guard it. And that's what Timothy is to do with the gospel. Is don't let it get damaged. Guard it. That's, that's the idea here. Guard that. Don't let it get damaged. Don't let it get altered. Don't let it get perverted in any way, mixed up. Don't let it get lost. I mean, there are... Think, think back through history. Have there been seasons of time where it, it was like there were, you know, people are all but lost to the gospel? That's terrifying in a way. What would we do without the gospel? What would cause the gospel to be damaged or lost even to, to a group of people? False teaching? False teachers? Do you realize whether in Timothy's day or our day how many perversions there are surrounding the gospel trying to damage it and lose it? You ever think about that? I, don't, I think we, we really soften all of this stuff in our minds. It'll be okay. Paul is really calling Timothy to a great urgency here. What an eternal perspective he has here. Guard it. How many, how many gospel perversions can you think of right now that are just growling, as it were, around the message of the gospel, waiting to destroy it, hoping to destroy it? How about legalism? Right, there's the classic one. Humans are bent to legalism. We always try to add some human effort to the gospel message, don't we? Why do we want to do that? Because as human beings, we don't want to see ourselves as sinful and depraved and unable as we really are. We want to get some glory for our own salvation. We want to think that we're good enough and we have something in us that can be pleasing to God. Legalism is an attack against the gospel because the gospel says that we cannot be saved apart from faith by the grace of God alone in Christ alone, right? How about mystical gospels? You have to have some sort of a mystical encounter experience with God. We just talked about that last week in Colossians chapter 2. If you want to be viewed as a child of God, as a person who has a right standing with God, well then you've got to have some sort of a mystical encounter. Otherwise you're sort of way down here. That's an enemy of the gospel. How about easy believism gospel? That's all over the place, right? If you just... You, you, can, you believe this, 
You, okay, you, you, you think you're a sinner, right? That's good enough. All right, uh, God died for sins, good. Okay, pray this prayer. If you prayed this prayer, sign this card, walk the aisle, you're good to go. Did I understand anything about the gospel? Somebody told me something to do that sounded good. Well, I'll just go ahead and do it. That's an enemy of the gospel. How about no lordship gospel? You can, you can um, confess Christ, pray the prayer, and then it doesn't really matter how much your life has changed. You made a decision. Well, if, even if you're living for the world and a godless life, you're still saved because you made that decision. The Bible says otherwise, right? Or how about the self-esteem gospel? We flip the whole gospel on its head sometimes, don't we? We say things like this, God can't live without you. You are so special and valuable. That's why Jesus died for you. Have you heard that before? That is anti-gospel. And then you know what? What does it make? It makes, it makes us the end of the gospel. God did all of this because he couldn't bear eternity without us. Is that truth? That is not truth. It's the other way round. We can't live without God. The end of the gospel is God. If we don't have the gospel, we don't have God. What is eternity without God? God is an eternal being who's perfectly satisfied in himself. He does not need us. But yet because he is love, because he wants to give us himself, he made the gospel so that we could be brought into the joy the eternal joy of having God. You see how it flips the whole thing around? It puts you at the center of the gospel instead of God. Legalism, mysticism, easy believism, no lordship, self-esteem, prosperity gospel. You follow Jesus, you accept Jesus because he'll make your life better. He'll, he'll heal your sicknesses. He'll restore all of your broken relationships. He'll give you your best life now. This is such a popular gospel. And basically, you have to be in a casket in the ground not to want to receive it. If you're breathing, living, hearing, you'll want that. Any human being will want that. Unsaved people want that. And it's a lie. Or how about just plain humanism that hates the gospel? Right? Crushes the truth, moves it out and says, whatever you think is true, whatever you want to believe, that's good for you. It's interesting how you have to talk with people nowadays because the concept of universal truth is gone in their minds. And so they're okay with us believing what we want to. They're okay with believing whatever they want to. And it doesn't matter what it is. Relativism, humanism. There are a myriad of vicious attacks against the gospel. So what are we called to? Guard it. Defend it. To, in that love and faith and gentleness, like Paul's going to talk about in 2 Timothy 2, guard it. Correct gospel error. How are we to do that then? What kind of a task is this that we could do something like this? And that's why Paul the Apostle here calls us to do so by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Christ in us is our only hope for this. 
not your knowledge, not my intellect, not our skill to communicate, not my skill to communicate. No, it's the Holy Spirit. God Himself who lives in you will provide for you in the moment all the power, love, and discernment that you need. Isn't that what Paul just got done telling Timothy? God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and self-control. That self-control is, remember, it's a special word that combines discernment and prudence to know what to say, how to say it at the right time. Such a precious gift we're given. Let me give you some references to remind yourself of the power of the Holy Spirit. John 14, 16 through 17. I'm going to read these to you. I want you to jot them down and maybe just look at them throughout this week as well. This is the heart of how we know and how we are able to guard the gospel and follow the pattern. This is the upper room discourse of Christ. And this is, this is what this is the precious gift he gives to his disciples upon leaving. His physical presence is leaving. And then he says to them, John 14, verse 16, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, an advocate to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. You have the Spirit of truth in you. That is a precious gift. The Spirit of truth. So that you can speak the truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. You know Him. For He dwells in you and He will be with you. Isn't that interesting? He dwells in you. Or, I'm sorry. For He dwells with you and He will be in you. I flipped those around. He dwells with you and will be in you. He was there dwelling with them in the person of Christ when Christ was telling them this. And Jesus was promising the same Spirit that inhabits me will be in you too. And that's for us. Think of that. The same Spirit, that third person of the Trinity that inhabited Christ to enable Him to speak the way He spoke and live the way He lived is in you. That's your hope. That is your entire confidence Verse 26 of that same chapter, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. John 15, verse 26. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. And John 16, verse 7 through 11, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I'll send him to you. And when he comes, he'll convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you see me no more. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. And verse 13 through 15. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. 
For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me. He will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said, he will also take what is mine and declare it to you. This Jesus spoke directly to his disciples and specifically applies to their being the recipients of divine revelation through the Holy Spirit. But this applies to us because we have the Scriptures that was inspired by the Holy Spirit through the apostles. And now Christ will do these things not through direct revelation in us, but through the Scriptures. And so He will witness through us. He will lead us into the truth that's in Scripture. He will remind us of His words in Scripture. The precious gift that we have in Christ of the Holy Spirit within us. And we know this is ours the moment we believe because Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 and 14 say this, And him also, when you heard the word of, and, or in him also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation, and believed in him, in Christ, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. Look at 2 John, or I'll read it to you. Jot this reference down, 2 John chapter 2. In this chapter, the Apostle John says to the, his audience, children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. These are, these are those who speak a false gospel into the world, Antichrists. But, John says, you have been anointed by the Holy One. And you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. And because no lies of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. So let what you've heard from the beginning abide in you. John is saying the same thing Paul is saying here. Hold fast to the sound words. Guard it by the Holy Spirit that dwells in you. If, you have heard, if, if what you have heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and the Father. And this is the promise that He made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you have received from Christ, from Him, abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you. But His anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, as He has taught you. Abide in Him. You see, you have the anointing of Christ, the Holy Spirit within you to guard the gospel, to follow the pattern of gospel words. Let me quote to you from John Stott's commentary. I recommend John Stott to you. He's a fantastic gospel commentator. He says, there is great encouragement here Ultimately, it is God Himself who is the guarantor of the gospel. It is His responsibility to preserve it. On no other ground should the work of preaching be for a moment endurable. 
we may see the evangelical faith, the faith of the gospel everywhere spoken against, and the apostolic message of the New Testament ridiculed. We may have to watch an increase of apostasy in the church as our generation abandons the faith of its fathers, but do not be afraid. God will never allow the light of the gospel to be finally extinguished. True, He has committed it so thus. He has committed it to us, frail and fallible creatures. He has placed it He has placed its treasure in brittle earthenware vessels. And we must play our part in guarding and defending the truth. Nevertheless, in entrusting the gospel into our hands, He has not taken His own hands off of it. He is Himself its final guardian, and He will preserve the truth which He has committed to the church. We know this because we know Him in whom we have trusted and continue to trust. That's why the Apostle Paul says this. Keep it by the Holy Spirit who dwells in you. That's why Paul said earlier, I know whom I have believed and am convinced that He is able to keep that which has been entrusted to me until that day. My dear brothers and sisters in Christ, let us seek by the Holy Spirit's power to live to these commands. To follow the pattern. To guard the good deposit entrusted to us. To speak the truth in love and clarity. To correct with boldness and gentleness gospel error when it arises. And to prayerfully rely upon the Holy Spirit. At every point in gospel advancement, we must remain faithful to the message by the Holy Spirit's power. Now, finally this morning, I need to finish this for you so that you get the whole picture. There is then finally what I'm calling number three, critical faithfulness. Verses 15 through 18. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are, let's see, I'm going to get the, I'm going to get the right pronunciation for you because everybody, we all, we all say these words differently. So I looked them up. I want to say this right for you. I hope this isn't a distraction, but I want to say it. It's Fugalos and Hermogenes. Hermogenes. These men turned away from me. And then, Paul says, may the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day, and you will know all the service he rendered Ephesus. Paul closes with some powerful, stirring examples of gospel faithfulness and unfaithfulness. Two examples, one negative, one positive. And he's putting these before Timothy and really, in a sense, implying to him, Timothy, which one are you going to be? Who will you be? There's those who turned away. Look at these words. Turned away. Just, just the word, the verbiage that Paul uses here speaks that of an event, some crisis, some critical moment that was the catalyst for so many turning away. And we 
most likely think here that it was what? Paul's arrest and imprisonment in the Mamertine prison in Rome. And that would make perfect sense, right? Because those who were following him, closely associated, wanted to, out of fear and shame, be disassociated with Paul. I don't want to get in trouble like Paul did. I don't want to be identified with what he's been identified with now. We've been uncovered. This is terrifying. I don't want to go to Mamertine like Paul did. And so they turned away. They turned away. They turned away from Paul who spoke the gospel, who, who gave to them the gospel. All who are in Asia. Isn't that something? All who are in Asia? The capital of Asia, the Asia area that Paul had ministered in, the capital there of that Roman province was Ephesus. Turned away from Paul as the apostle with Christ's authority to deliver the gospel to the Gentiles. John Stott indicates that these churches and their leaders depended on Paul greatly for their founding, their development, their strengthening, their sustaining. And now at this most critical moment in Paul's life, what are they doing? They're repudiating him. They are disavowing him. Stott writes that this is more than a personal dis desertion. This is a disavowal of apostolic authority. And the leaders of this defection seem to be the men named. Fugalos, Hermogenes. It's hard to know how many people are involved in this, this defection. All who are in Asia, there must be a specific group that Paul has in mind. But this is, this is, this is crushing. Acts 19, 8-20, talk about this very area and how the Word of God increased and expanded through this area. And it says all the inhabitants of Asia heard the Gospel. And it was powerfully received. And now what? Out of fear and shame, they turn away in the cause of the Gospel. We may not know exactly who Paul has in mind other than these two leaders, but Timothy knows. You see that? That's what's really important here. You are aware, Timothy. He was serving in that area. He was keenly aware of all this turmoil going on. Paul moves from then the negative example of this defection, which would have surely been fresh and burning within Timothy's heart, even as he read this, he probably, he knows these guys. He knows who Paul is talking about. And then he moves from those negative examples of, to this positive example, from gospel defection to gospel faithfulness. And he says, look at Onesiphorus. Look at the words that Paul says here. He often refreshed me. This is amazing. I want to meet this guy. Wow. He refreshed me. That means he, he cooled me off. He gave me a cold drink of water. He recovered me from the effects of the heat that I was experiencing. He helped me to catch my breath. That's Recovered breath is part of the definition of that word. He revived me. And look, he was not ashamed of my chains. In fact, in verse 17, he says, 
this guy who was, look, he was serving in Ephesus. He left his family and he came to Rome where Paul was in the Mamertine prison and he looked for him and searched him and found him. And, and maybe even right there in the prison, he, in the dungeon, he, he ministered to him. And Timothy knew all about it. He knew all about the service that this man had done. This was probably one of the faithful few in the Ephesian church who had served well with Timothy in all of the struggle that Timothy had been going through. What a guy. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he didn't disassociate himself from Paul. He didn't abandon the faith. He found Paul in Rome. I mean, how would you find someone like that in this day? I wonder where Paul is. And eventually, just, what would he have done? It, 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 just your imagination runs wild. Would he have gone up to the Mamertine prison, like knocked on the door? I don't know how this works. Who would he have asked? Like, is Paul down there? I mean, that's, you almost think, well, that would have given himself away. That kind of association with Paul. That he was an associate. He was a powerful, he was, or he was a leader. He was an associate. And so Paul prays for Onesiphorus in this letter to Timothy. And he asks God to grant to his family and to him mercy. Mercy. May the Lord grant to him mercy. May he give to his family mercy. Interesting. It seems that because Paul asks for mercy for his family and for him, verse 16 and verse 18, for mercy in a separate way that Onesiphorus and his family are separated right now. He was in Rome. His family was still in Ephesus. And you know, it's interesting, there's lots of different speculation about this particular situation that is pressed into all kinds of interesting teaching. But I wonder, I wonder if Onesiphorus was also incarcerated during his service to Paul because he was obviously seen as an associate of Paul. And that would give even, to me, even a greater sense of these words. A prayer for mercy. That Paul would say this family left without their family head, right? For at least for a time, he's in, maybe he's incarcerated, at least he's separated from them, and he's praying, give them what they need. Give them strong help during this season where it is very difficult. Lift them up, care for them with your strength, and be merciful to Onesiphorus when he stands before you. And the reason why I think maybe he was, he was incarcerated too, because why does, why does, the Apostle Paul go from asking for kind of a, an earthly mercy for his family and then a, a mercy and judgment for Onesiphorus. When he stands before you, may the Lord grant him to find mercy on that day. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. That's interesting how, how Paul words that. The Lord is giving mercy to Onesiphorus so that he'll have mercy before the great judge. What is, he, what, is he, what is Paul doing there? May in Christ he find mercy in the judgment of the eternal God 
on that day when he stands before you. And you know, it could be that what Paul has in mind here is kind of the words of Christ where it says, blessed are the merciful for they will receive mercy. And Paul's not saying, or or neither is Jesus, that, that those who show mercy to others on earth will earn mercy before God when they stand before him. It what Jesus is saying there is that those, those who demonstrate mercy on earth are proving that they've already received mercy from God and therefore will have mercy from God on the day of judgment. And Paul's words, I am certain, because of what we know in Timothy's life in the future, in Scripture and in Christian history, but Paul's words met their mark in Timothy. Who do you want to be like? Onesiphorus? Or those defectors in Asia. I can imagine Timothy as he's reading this. Like, I don't want to be like that, Lord. Keep me from being a gospel defector. The the, the turmoil, the pain, the the stretching he would have experienced. And even as he reads the letter, keep me from being unfaithful to the gospel at the most critical moments. Instead, cause me to be like Onesiphorus. I wonder if Paul's words meet their mark in your heart. Did they cause you to turn to Christ and cry out for the power of the Holy Spirit to keep you from being unfaithful to the gospel? Don't think that you can't be unfaithful. And please notice that gospel fruitfulness, gospel faithfulness does not only include speaking the gospel, It also includes serving those who are faithfully speaking the gospel. Have you noticed that there with Onesiphorus? He served. He went and refreshed Paul, the mouthpiece for the moment. That's still gospel faithfulness. Especially during those critical moments, those crisis points. You see? You know, those moments... Those moments, whatever they may be, dear ones, listen, will we speak and serve the gospel faithfully or will we defect because of shame and fear? Those moments will come. And I think they're going to come more frequently. And they will become more intense. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. May the Holy Spirit empower us to be faithful to the gospel message. As we close this morning, I want to ask each of you personally and directly, what a powerful text. Will you commit yourself to offensive faithfulness? I'm serious. Paul's serious. The Spirit of God is serious with this. Will we renew our devotion to keeping the gospel before our eyes and holding fast to it. And you know where that comes into play? Day by day. Will we open the Scriptures and feast our heart on the gospel of Jesus Christ? What will we put before our eyes? 
what will we put before our ears? Doesn't the busyness and the demands of this life run us through our days one after another, and yet we are not committed to keeping the gospel before us, to know the details of it so that it is inscribed upon our hearts? Will you commit to this in a fresh way today? I'm inviting you to reorganize your priorities, to set aside those things that are of lesser importance and to carve into your day regular gospel recurrence so that you can follow the pattern of sound words by the Holy Spirit that's given to you. Will you commit yourself to defensive faithfulness? Will you renew your devotion to guarding the gospel from error? There's a lot to do on that front, isn't there? In our own hearts, in our families, among our friends, our brothers and sisters in Christ. Will we then commit ourselves to critical faithfulness? Will you renew your devotion to continue to speak and serve the gospel and its bearers even during the most critical moments? The moments that could cause you shame and pain and loss and fear. Crisis points. And please know, in all of that, I say that, try to say that, the way Paul brings that out to Timothy. But please know that you and I are not at all capable of these commitments in our own strength. But we absolutely can and will by the power of the Holy Spirit within us. Do you believe that? The Holy Spirit will carry you through all this? And do you know what the Holy Spirit will continue to deliver to us that will deepen our devotion to the Gospel? What does He deliver to us in the Gospel? He will cause us to see the greatness of the Gospel to deliver very great sinners. That's what verses 9 and 10 are all about in chapter 1. That's why Paul goes there. Look at it again. See it for what it is. And more than that, He will cause us to see the Spirit of God as you study the Gospel and put it before you. He will cause you to see the greatness of the God who has brought us to the Gospel. The power of God. This Isn't that what the... There's not many things in Scripture that are called the power of God. And the Gospel is one of them. The power of God is available to us. And then, most importantly, the Spirit of God will cause you to see the greatness of the God who has been given to you in the Gospel. As you study the Gospel, what do I mean by that? As you study the Gospel and you, and you refresh your soul in it and feed your soul in it, you will, in heart, more and more, become like that man in Matthew 13.44. What's the man in Matthew 13.44? You remember that? The man who is willing to what? Sell everything to buy this little field because he knew that in that field there was a treasure. And through that treasure, he would be given everything. You see? That's what the gospel is. That's what enables us with the gospel to be shameless and suffering, to be stirring up our gifts to advance the gospel and to to guard it and follow it because we know that the gospel is worth more than anything else. Why? Because in the gospel we get God. That's why the gospel is the gift that God has given to us to give us Himself. 
And what's more precious than having eternity, enjoying the glory of God? At every point in gospel advancement, we must remain faithful to the message by the power of the Holy Spirit. If you're here this morning and you are not a believer, I want to ask you that simple question. Have you sold everything to receive the gospel? Have you sold your self-righteousness? Have you sold your sin? Because you know that Christ is all you need to stand before God righteous, His righteousness, His atonement for you to remove your punishment, to take away your guilt, and to declare you right with God. The gospel delivers all that to you. And in that, God will give you Himself who is far greater than any sin that you could enjoy for the short season of this life. Let's all stand together and we'll pray this morning. Our Father in heaven, we are humble before this text. And we, we, we see the call to be far greater than we could ever accomplish in our own strength and doing. So we, we run to Christ in our hearts. We confess to you, Father, together. I invite my brothers and sisters to join with me in my prayer. We confess to you, Father, that we have neglected the sound words that have been delivered to us. Day in and day out, so much neglect. We have not treasured the treasure. We have feasted ourselves on other things. We have filled ourselves with the world and tried to satisfy ourselves in sinful things. Forgive us, Father. You have forgiven us in Christ. And Father, we confess that we have fallen short of guarding the gospel. We have felt shame and fear when others before us have communicated what they believe is the gospel and yet it's so far from the truth and we have kept our mouths shut. Teach us, Father, with boldness and love and gentleness to put into their ears the true cure, the true sound, healthy, whole, life-saving words. And Father, there have been critical points that we've experienced along the way. Father, we, I, I dread, I, I ask that you would not, not allow us to look back on our lives and see a bunch of critical moments and crisis points where we wish we would have said something different. We wish we would have done something different. By your Spirit, change us to make us into people who will know that power that you deliver to communicate the gospel, to live serving the gospel with shamelessness, confidence, in love with deep conviction. Help us to recognize when those critical moments come. We may not have a dear brother and sister be taken off to the Mamertine prison, but there are other things that are like that, that demand that we serve and speak faithfully. Help us not to back away in fear and to defect. 
Keep us from the evil ones. Sanctify us in the truth. Unify us in the truth. And may we anticipate the great joy of experiencing the love of God forever and hold fast to Him, to be willing to sell all for the treasure of God in the gospel. And I pray if there is someone here this morning that hears these words and is still clinging clinging to self-righteousness and to sin and to worldly living, and they do not see the value of Christ and the treasure of the gospel, we pray that you would open their eyes and they too would be willing to sell all to receive the gospel, the God of the gospel, forgiveness of sins and eternal life. We pray this in the name of Christ and for his glory. Amen.